silly to think about. We've been going through a lot of different little stories through the overall story of the Bible, and today we come to the part of the story that I'd like to think is probably the climax. We talk about today everything that we've been talking about for the last five or six months have been leading up to this moment, to what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about everything that has come and happened so far is meeting up in this one moment. But before we get too far into the hour of darkness, and I will let you know some of this may be a little bit heavy, but I'll try to stay with try to stay with me this morning. We want to talk first about the overview, a little overview of Jesus's life. Most of us know Jesus came to this earth uh, like all of us do as a baby, was born to a a mother like everybody else, maybe in a little bit of a, a unique way. <laughs> But he was born just the same. And so, growing up, uh, Jesus was always a little bit different. Uh, At the age of, what was it, 12, uh, he was found in the temple, uh, hanging out in church, as it were, um, which most young teenagers, I'm sure do, uh, just want and desire to hang out at the church house. So Jesus may have been just slightly different than most of us. I know as a teenager, um, that was certainly my mission, was always to be in church every single chance I got. Uh, It wasn't. Um, (laughs) But Jesus was different, and so Jesus continued to grow and mature. And then we pick up back in his story when he starts his ministry around the age of 30. And you know, I was thinking about this this morning. I'm 31 right now. I'll be 32 in just a couple of months. And I was trying to think, okay, so by the age of 31, Jesus had already delivered fantastic messages to hundreds of people on the sides of mountains, at lakes. He had fed 5,000 people with just a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He had... Raise somebody from the dead? (laughs) And I'm thinking, okay, at 31, what have I done? (laughs) Hmm. But I think that's probably the point. Uh, Jesus was different, and God. (laughs) And so I I wonder what it was like to hang out with Jesus. So at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he takes some time to collect some people that he was going to impart his wisdom onto. He collected 12 men that would travel with him as he went all over the place teaching about who he was and what God had to offer through him. And he collected these 12 men, called them his disciples, and they went off on their journey. And I sort of wonder what it may have been like to travel with Jesus while they were going around to all these places, while he was feeding the 5,000, which was probably more than that if you count for the women and children, uh, what it would have been like to see somebody raised from the dead, what it would have been like to hear him preach to all of those people that he preached to. All of those amazing stories 
that you can read through in the Gospels of the New Testament. And even in the Gospel of John, it says that there were so many more things that they couldn't be all written down. And so just the things that we have in our Bible is just a small sampling of what they may have encountered. That's incredible to think about. And yet, through all of these things, we come to the end of Jesus' ministry. He's been, in, he's been in ministry for about three years, roaming around the countryside, preaching about who God is, touching people who needed to be touched, healing those who needed to be healed, performing miracles who still needed something to see before they believed. And yet after all of that, the disciples got to witness all of that at the end of his life. They come to the final supper, the last supper. And they're all sitting around the table. And I wonder, I sometimes wonder what that conversation would have looked like. You know, before they got to the breaking of bread and, and, the, and all that stuff. If they're sitting around and they're talking about, you know, remembering what had gone on the past few years. Because I think they could probably tell something big was about to happen. I'm sure that I'd like to think that Jesus was a, a happy-go-lucky kind of person most of the time. And they probably could have told, they probably could have seen that things were a little bit more somber at this particular dinner engagement. But I wonder if before it got to that point, if they were talking about some of those stories, reliving some of those incredible things that they had seen over the last three years. And then, of course, they break the bread and Jesus, you know, tells them all, that they will forsake him. And of course, there starts a rumbling, and, and Peter says, no, no, we would never do that. And me especially, Jesus, I, I, would never, I would never do it. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, yeah, but you're going to do it not once or twice, but three times when it happens. And then we get to the part of the story that matters most. After everything that they had been through over the last three years, Jesus had called them up out of their jobs, out of their lives, to come and follow him, and they did. Because they knew that he was different. And they followed him around for those three years, and after everything that they had seen, who was there in the final moments? In the garden... They fell asleep. At Jesus' trials, they weren't there. And even in the streets, when somebody recognized Peter for who he was because they had seen him traveling around with this man who was on trial, and they said, we know who you are. We recognize your face. And he said, no, it wasn't me. You, you've... You've got me confused. And so it comes to the end of Jesus' life, and here he is, standing in front of the, the government of the, the place that he was in. The Jews not really knowing what they could do with him, although they accused him of blasphemy. And so they turned him over to the Romans who were the real power 
And so they put him on trial. But even before that, Jesus goes before Pilate. And Pilate starts to question him. And the funny thing is, is that Jesus doesn't really give any answers except for one. Pilate simply asks him, are you who they say that you say you are? Are you the Son of God? And he simply replies with, I am. Now, I don't know if you'll remember this part of the story. If we go back a little bit further in the Bible and we maybe think about another person who had heard that exact same phrase, somebody who was going to lead the Israelites out of their slavery, somebody else had said that line before. It was through a burning bush when Moses was talking to God. And Moses said, but who am I supposed to tell them that, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? And God simply replies with, I am. That name had significance. And so Jesus simply replies with, I am. And yet, even through that confession, Pilate could find no real fault in what Jesus had done. And so he simply turned it back over to them and said, I don't see what the problem is, but I'll let you handle it. So they put him on a fake trial. After his fake trial, he was turned back over to the guards and the soldiers who mocked him. They put a robe around his shoulders, gave him a scepter, calling him the king of the Jews. They blindfolded him. And then they would hit him on the head and say, Jesus, tell us who that was. You're the son of God. You know everything. Then they would hit him again and say, well, well, tell us who that was. And so they mocked him. Then shortly after that, which was customary of a customary punishment of criminals at the time, is that they would take him to be flogged. Now, something that we should probably all understand is that flogging in this era was something that the Romans did to criminals, and yet it was illegal to flog a Roman citizen. And the reason for that is because of its sheer brutality. You see, this was like the the pre-punishment before the actual punishment. And yet it was such a harsh thing to do to somebody, most of the time, the criminals died from just the flogging alone. And this is where it might get just a little bit heavy, but I hope you can stay with me because I think the understanding what Jesus went through in this moment is pivotal to understanding the sacrifice that was made. And so as he is taken to the area where he is going to be flogged, typically what would happen is that there would be a post in the ground and the criminal's hands would be tied above their heads so that their back was stretched out. And what most of the time would happen is that they would take an instrument that was a stick or a club with eight or nine different strands of leather tied to the end of it. And embedded or tied to that pe- those pieces of leather would have been broken pieces of pottery, sharp rocks, 
whatever they could find. And the soldier that would be doing the act, in most depictions, uh, what ends up happening is it looks like a whipping motion, which would have been effective. However, most historians have found that what actually was going on during a flogging was more like laying the strands of leather over a person's body so that they would wrap around and then ripping upwards and back. And then somebody on the other side would lay across and rip up and back. And what ended up happening from this gruesome act was that the skin and muscle on somebody's back and upper torso would be ripped open. And a lot of the times, they would start to see organs and bone. And it was horrific. And then after that was done, like I said, most people died and there was a law that you could only do it 39 times because typically after 39, that's when they would start to die. And yet Jesus endured 40. Then after that, they put the robe back on him. And if you've ever done that, I've, I, I, uh, <laughs> I cut my finger recently and um, I didn't have any bandages uh, around me. So what I did is I, I had a dark t-shirt on, so I just wrapped it in my t-shirt uh, to try and stop the bleeding from my thumb. And it worked until I pulled the shirt away and then it started bleeding again. And so while Jesus had just endured this intense act of flogging, they put this robe back on his shoulders. And just like my t-shirt did to my thumb in this really poor example, (laughs) it started to dry onto the robe. But then they went a step further, and because they wanted to mock him more, they fashioned some vine of thorns into a makeshift crown and then placed it on his head. But what you have to understand is that they didn't just do it gently. (laughs) No. Something also that we may need to understand is that there's not a lot of really big pain receptors in the top of the head. And so just sticking it on although that would have been painful, was probably not enough. And so what they ended up doing was pressing it on. Some accounts even say that it was, they took the scepter from him and and hit it on. And so now thorns in his head, robe over his shoulders again, he's then as part of the custom of of the time of this punishment, asked to carry part of the cross. Because before this all started, when he was turned back over to the crowds, they were given a choice. Because Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with him. I don't don't understand what your guys' problem with him is, but if you guys really have a problem, Pilate did something interesting. He ceremoniously washed his hands of the problem. How often do we do that? 
But he took a basin of water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. And then some accounts would say that in this moment he would take the water and he would flick it onto the crowd. Making it their problem, not his. And he gave them a choice. We can punish him like you want, which would be crucifixion. Or we can let him go. But because Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with him, he said, if we're going to do that, if you're going to punish him, then we'll have to let somebody else go. It was fair. And so he said, I've got this other prisoner. His name is Barabbas. And, um, and he's not a good dude. He's a murderer. Um, he's, he's probably done some, some raping and stuff. I mean, he's not a good dude. We can let him go. And we can punish Jesus instead. Uh, or we can just let Jesus go. Because really, I can't find anything wrong with him. But the crowd continued to yell, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. They chose a murderer over Jesus. And so as he's endured the punishment of flogging and as he's been mocked, he's got a crown on, the robe back on, then they make him carry part of his cross. Now, it wouldn't necessarily have been the whole cross. It was most likely just the the cross beam, the horizontal beam. And yet, due to the sheer size of the apparatus that he was going to be attached to, most historians believe that this horizontal cross beam could have weighed as much as 75 pounds. Now, uh, I don't know uh, much about you, and you may not know this about me, but I am really not into fitness. So, (laughs) um, I could probably lift... 30 pounds on a good day. Um, But 75 pounds starts to push me at my limits because I've got little noodle arms. So I could not imagine having to carry 75 pounds, by the way, up a cobblestone road uphill, Even if I was healthy. (laughs) But you see, Jesus in the state that he was in had just been flogged and mocked and beaten a little bit. He's probably got a headache from the crown. And yet here he was asked to carry part of his cross in just another moment of humiliation. And you know, there's been a lot of discussion as to what part of the cross he carried and and how far he had to carry it. And and if there really was someone named Simon of Cyrene that had to help him carry the cross. But truthfully, what I think matters is that he did it. You see, he carried the cross for a purpose. And then we know that he gets to the point where they're going to attach him to this cross. And so they put the cross section together and they lay Jesus on it. And 
what we most have known from growing up and being in Scripture and reading through it is that they attached nails at his wrists and at his ankles. Some depictions have it going through the hands and through his feet. But it was more likely through the actual wrist because that's where the most damage would be done. If it was through the hand, your hand wouldn't be able to support your weight of your body and the nail would just rip through. And so putting it right through your wrist where those two arm bones have a section of empty space. Also, there's a good collection of nerves in your wrist that would send pain up and down your spine. And so nails going through his wrist and through his ankles to support his weight. Other historians have claimed that the, the legs were wrapped around the cross uh, to support the weight of the body. No matter how it was done, what we do know is that Jesus was there and he was attached to a cross. Not just for nothing. You see, he was fulfilling what the scriptures had been talking about, had been leading up to this point. All of this story comes to this climax where Jesus is here on the cross. It was talked about in poetry by David and by Solomon. It was talked about in the Old Testament through sacrifices that almost were made when Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And all through the story of Scripture, we get to this point where Jesus is on the cross. And in Scripture, it talks about that his bones would never be broken, that he would go silent before his captors like a lamb to the slaughter. And so here Jesus was fulfilling all of these things and not just for nothing, but for me and for us. And in John 19.30, after everything that he endured on that day so far, the beatings, the mocking, the flogging, the carrying of the cross, the nailing to the cross, in John 19 and verse 30, Jesus cries out, It is finished. So why? After all of that, why? And there's two things that I want us to remember about why Jesus did this. The first being that he was thinking about our story. You see, Jesus conquered the punishment of sin. Each and every one of us have it. Each and every one of us sin. Scripture teaches us that. And yet through the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross that day, he conquered the punishment of our sin. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, and we're going to read verse 21. This is one of those verses where it's very underlinable. <laughs> if you've not already underlined it, I want to encourage you to think about it or highlight it or write in the notes, draw some arrows around it. Because this verse 
tells us why Jesus did this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's incredible. You see, some Bible scholars will say that in the moment that Jesus was on the cross and he looks up to heaven and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some historians will say that, some Bible scholars will say that in that moment, God had to turn his face away from his son because his son had become the sin of the world. He had taken my sin. And he had taken our sin and become that on our behalf. And so what we see from 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 is the reason that this happened, the reason that the whole story has come to this moment is because of our story. It's because of our sin that he needed to erase, that he needed to take on our behalf, that he needed to be the sacrifice for. You see, everything in Scripture had been leading up to this. The Jews had been practicing this for millennia. The way that their government worked was that they had a high priest who every year would go into the temple and would take the sacrifice of one lamb and would take the blood and sprinkle it onto the Ark of the Covenant. And that act alone would cleanse the sin of the people for another year. And here Jesus was, being likened to in Scripture as that sacrificial lamb that went before us and on our behalf and excuse me, climbed up on that cross to die for our sins because he became our sin so that we would no longer have to worry about the guilt of our sin. That's why the entire story has come up to this moment was because of our sin that he needed to erase and only that he could erase. Because in that moment, Christ died for me. Because of the cross, we can become new. Because of the cross, my sin is erased so that I can live in full righteousness of God with Him in eternity. You see, because when we get there, there can be no sin. When we leave this life, there can be no sin on the other side. God tells us in Revelation that when that moment comes, He will wipe every tear away. Sin and darkness and death will be no more because it has been defeated on the cross. That's the point of the story. But there's a second reason. Not only was he thinking about our story, but he was thinking of his father's story. 
since the beginning of Scripture, since the beginning of our story that we can read through, in the very beginning, in Genesis, Satan has been trying to hijack God's story. From the very beginning, from the first two people that ever existed on this planet, Satan has been trying to hijack God's story. You'll remember, you remember the story, they're in the garden. They've been told they can do anything they want, go anywhere they want, eat anything they want, except for one tree. I just, I need you to leave that tree alone. And isn't it just like us to maybe not follow the rules exactly? It was a simple rule. You can do anything. You can have anything. Just not this one. Trust me. I sometimes have wondered, I think back to when I was in Bible college and when I was trying to digest exactly what all of that meant. And I heard somebody say, or I remember this from one of my classes, that God created us to have a relationship with us. That is, I don't think, too disputed among Bible scholars. The reason that we are here is to love God and love other people. I mean, Jesus said it himself. It's just the two things that he wants for us to do. And so God created all of this world for us so that we could be with him. But something that we have to understand is that God just didn't want us to be here and and be mindless worshipers. He didn't want us to be just robot worshipers that just, that's all we did, that's all we knew. He created us to have a choice. Now, some people compared us to angels. I remember this from some of my classes. You see, angels, that's what they were created for. They, they worship. They do, you know, everything that God tells them to do. That's, that's their job. They sing. They, they do their thing. I mean, we read in Revelation some of the things that they do. But God made us to be different. God made us to have a choice. And so God could have created this entire world that he had given Adam and Eve. It said, do anything you want. If he had never put that tree in the garden, would we have had a choice? And so, in order to give us the opportunity to have a choice, the tree was there. But God said, listen, I I don't want you to eat from this one. And if you remember from Scripture, Satan says to Eve, You know, the reason he doesn't want you to eat from this one is because you'll be just like him. Because all they had known up until that point was joy and relationship and love. But see, what God knew, what God is, is love. But God is aware of the opposite of himself. And so I think maybe that Satan was trying to tempt us (laughs) into something that wasn't all the way true. 
from the very beginning, first two people on the planet, Satan had been trying to hijack God's story. And we see that woven through all of the scripture, all throughout that Satan had been trying to hijack God's story. When God had called a young man to go preach in a town that he really didn't want to go to, he said, God, you don't really know about these people. I mean, they're bad people. I think, I think maybe I'll just do my own thing. God, in his infinite sense of humor, has a giant fish swallow this dude up. Until he realizes, maybe I should probably do what God wants. <laughs> Changes his mind. (laughs) And then he goes and he preaches, but that wasn't enough. (laughs) You know, so often we talk about the story of Jonah and and we don't get to the end part. My favorite is the end. When he preaches to to Nineveh and and he gets done and he goes out and he sits up on the hill and he's like, all right, God, I preached to him, but (laughs) I'm going to watch as you, you know, strike him down with lightning. Anytime, because because did you saw how they are? Yeah, they're bad. I'll just I'll, I'll wait. Well, then he falls asleep, and while he falls asleep, a tree grows over him to shade him. He probably wakes up as the shade is there, and he says, "Oh, well, that's nice. Look at that shade." Just kind of appeared out of nowhere. Well, then he falls back asleep, and then the shade is gone, and he's baking in the heat. And so he starts to curse this tree that had given him shade, but has now died. And God simply says to Jonah, but you didn't do anything to make that tree. I made that tree. I gave it to you for shade. And yet again, Jonah learns another lesson important in our lives. But all throughout the story, Satan's been trying to hijack it. You see, Satan was trying to hijack Jonah in his choices. Satan was trying to hijack Saul as he was king over God's people. David was the rightful heir to the throne. And here Saul is, on several attempts, by the way, trying to get rid of David. At one point, he's throwing spears at him. Hi, buddy. (laughs) But see, the most important thing that I want us all to understand today is that as we have gone through the story, as we have looked through important parts of the the Bible, as we looked at Abraham and his sacrifices, as we looked at Moses leading the people out of of Egypt and the many miracles that happened in that, as we looked at Jonah, as we looked at the life of David and the choices and decisions, successes and failures that he had, as we look at every other piece of the Bible, as we go through the Old Testament, as we get into the New Testament, we see the life of Jesus, all of it brings us full circle back to God. You see, the very beginning, we were created to have a relationship with him. He walked in the garden with us, and yet we chose to do something different. And all throughout history, it's all throughout the Bible, all this story is, is us trying to get back to God and God trying to get to us to understand that we need to get back to him. And so all of this story leads us up to this point where Jesus is on the cross and he's dying for you and for me and it brings us full circle back to him. You see, the story is about us 
and about God and about our relationship together. This is what we were created for, to love God, to love other people, to bring them along with us for the ride. And what is most important from Genesis to Revelation is that sin and Satan are completely defeated because of the cross. Everything that has happened in the story to this point, every chapter, every verse, every fun little anecdote, all of it has led up to the sacrifice that Jesus made that day for you and for me. When he was in the garden and he said, man, God, if there's any other way that we can do this. And for most of us, I think that probably would have, that prayer probably would have ended there. <laughs> God, if there's any other way, man, let's, let's do that. Amen. (laughs) And yet Jesus said, God, if there's any other way, let's do that. But let's do your will. Amen. And when Jesus endured what he did that day, and he crawled up on the cross, and he screamed out, it is finished. Sin and death are done. And hope and life were born. It may be easy to think that it was all over when Jesus was on the cross. You see, the culmination of our Christian lives as we grow up in church, or even if you haven't, or if you've read through Scripture, if you've taken a look at what the story really entails, if we've dove deep into what some of the things that happened in the Bible are, if you've researched it or studied it, the brutality of what Jesus had to go through, it may have seemed like it was all over. The 12 men that he had traveled with, well, 11 at this point, (laughs) had all been with him for these three years. And in his final moments, exactly the way that he said that would happen, they weren't there. And I have to believe that it's because of their humanity that they believed that it was all over. Because all we know is that when somebody dies, they die. And yet, for Jesus, it was different. So I'm sure it was easy to think, when Jesus was on the cross, that it was all over. But I'm here to tell you today, and we're going to talk about this next week, when Jesus was on the cross, it was not the end, it was simply the beginning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the sacrifice that you made. God, it is sometimes hard for us to take in 
the brutality of that day. Sometimes it's hard to talk about exactly what you had to endure on our behalf in that moment. But Father, we could not be more grateful for that sacrifice. So Father, as we lift you up today, we ask that you would prick us. Help us to see that we truly need you in every aspect of our lives. Lord, we love you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing an invitation song. You might need prayer this morning. There will be people here to do that with you. You may need to make a decision today to follow Jesus for the first time. Or maybe we need to make a decision to come back and follow him better. If you need prayer or if you need someone to talk to or if you need to make a decision today, we want to invite you to do that here with us. We're going to sing, He Touched Me. And if you need to make a decision today, would you do that?